You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 280. The Calvary is not coming. Mark Duplass. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Now, how many filmmakers out there want to learn how to direct epic action on a budget? I teamed up with veteran film director and best-selling author Gil Beckman to teach a three-day directing video series on how to direct epic action on a budget. If you want access to this free masterclass, just head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash free. Well, guys, today on the show, we have writer-director Katie Asselton. And Katie was one of the stars of the indie film classic, The Puffy Chair, directed by Mark Duplass and produced by Jay Duplass, the Duplass brothers. And Katie and I had a fantastic conversation about what it was like being inside the machine, the puffy chair machine of what happened while they were making it, the truth and myth-busting about how it was made, everything that happened afterwards. And we also discussed her directing career, making movies like Freebie, uh, Black Rock, and her newest film, Mac and Rita, starring the legendary... Diane Keaton. It is a fantastic episode. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Katie Asselton. I'd like to welcome to the show, Katie Asselton. How you doing, Katie? Hey, I'm doing really good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been been watching you since the days of the puffy chair. Oh, so, so I had to watch me get old, right? <laughs> yeah. I, hate, I hate to tell you, we all do it. Uh, we all do it. It's, uh, it's something that is unfortunate or better. It depends. I just happened to do it on camera. <laughs> I was, I was going to say that. So interesting. Like you, like my kids see some videos of me when I was a kid, like when I was younger and they've seen pictures of me younger, but they literally see their, you know, yeah. you and it's Mark better. just grow old. <laughs> better, better, I would say. Yes. You know, we just evolve. We're evolving. Exactly. So, no, I've been, and I, I'm a huge morning show fan. I love the morning show. I love great. the morning show. It's such, it's such a great show. Uh, so my first question to you, Katie, is how and why in God's Green Earth did you want to get into this insanity that is called the film industry? Isn't it weird? I know. I'm a, I'm a, I grew up in Maine on a, on the coast, like past the tourist parts of Maine, like real Maine. And, uh, it wasn't a town where people left to go to Hollywood. So it wasn't like 
I was <clears throat> following in the footsteps of anyone else I knew. I just got a wild hair that this was what I was meant to do. And I, I had like just big dreams that I kind of kept to myself for a lot of my early years. And finally, I couldn't keep them in anymore. I don't know. I, I'm like the kid who, and look, I think we all do this, but I was definitely the kid who in everything I watched, like put myself in, I was, I'm like a super empath. And so I would like, things like really got me and uh, I would really just throw myself into every story. And, and my siblings were all much older than me. So I was essentially kind of an only child living in like a really rural area. So my sense of imagination was always very full. And um, yeah, I just, I don't know. It just, I don't know. That's what lit me up very early, but then had no opportunity for that. You know, like if you look in my high school yearbook, like I'm in the drama club, there were no productions. <laughs> so what did the, so what does a drama club do that has no productions? Just hang around the yearbook picture every year. I don't know. It was the weirdest thing. And the bummer so thing is, is that we're the, the drama program, like, they used to put on productions. I think they put on productions after I left. It was just my four-year stint, like nothing. Wow. It was dark at Narraguegas High School. Wow. So, so, uh, so obviously you've set out into the university. You say, hey, I want to be an actress. Yeah. I want to get to the film industry. And then obviously Hollywood just called and said, hey, what, what would you like to do? Oh, anything um, you want, baby. What do you need? Let me help you. How can Here's I help how can I help you? That's yes. I'm sure what you got. So what was the stage from when you want the dream? Look, did you go to New York? Did you go to LA? Where did you go? I went to Boston. <laughs> Obviously the, Obviously. the I think the third biggest production in the country. So my family, my parents, uh, God bless them, were like, you need to go to school in New England for at least two years. And I think their thought was, um, you know, I would fall in love with a program or a boy or the city or or just forget that I kind of thought maybe I wanted to move to L.A. to be an actor. Um, but I didn't. I didn't. And while I was in Boston, I went to BU <laughs> in my denial of my dreams and my uh, my sort of need to become to like be perceived as like a serious like contender in the world. I told my parents I wanted to go into journalism. I was like, that's the closest I think I can get. There's a camera involved. I'm still like a personality. And uh, so I applied and 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 got into Boston University, which has a fantastic journalism program that I absolutely hated. But I read Howard Stern's book and I was like, this is going to be great. Uh, not for me, because I actually just wanted to be Holly Hunter. And but actually a real journalist. So uh, I took acting classes on the side and really, really loved it. And and like kept looking at my clock and was like, all right, guys. And we are at the end of the two years. And you said you promised. And they they stuck by their word and they did it. And at 19, I moved out not knowing anyone uh, in Los Angeles. And I scoured the pages of Backstage West as early actors did as you do before the internet um and i found a play and i i sent in my headshot and i got a play that was in sunland now 
I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Southern California. Uh, yeah, someone's, it's, it's just a bit, out, bit, it's a bit out of LA. It's a bit, it's just a slight, a little bit out of LA. And North and there is nothing there. It's like industrial parks. Uh, but I landed a play called, uh, at a place called Playhouse of the Foothills. And, uh, and Hold on. that sounds like a place where that's where a horror movie starts. The yeah. Playhouse of the Foot. That you said sounds like something where a horror movie would start. <laughs> no, I. And if you saw it, it definitely looks like a place where a horror movie uh, should take place. Um, they didn't even give me the full script. Like I just got my scenes, but I was like in it. I loved it. I was so excited. My college roommate came out to visit, and this is where the story gets um, gets a little sensational. But I'm mm-hmm. promising you right now, this is all true. Okay. So she came out, we were 19, we didn't have fake IDs. So we were going to go out to celebrate. What were we going to do? We were going to go to Mel's diner on sunset to celebrate, get some strawberry shortcake. So we did. And while we were there, I look up, we were sitting outside. I look in at, at the windows and I was like, oh my God, it's that actor. It's that Dracula dude. Like, what is his name? I can't remember his name. And Rita's like, my roommate was like, James Woods. And I was like, yeah, it's James Woods. Dracula, dude. He never played Dracula. Did he? Didn't he? I don't know. That's how it went in my... In okay, fair did. enough. I think he did. Uh, we'll have to look it up. I'm not sure if James Woods played Dracula. In my head at 19, I was like, he played Dracula. I think he did. Anyhow, I was like, I don't know, but he's looking at us. And I think he's going to come over and talk to us. And she was like, no, what does he want? He doesn't want to talk to us. And I was like, I don't know, but he's walking to the table right now. And he was like, hey, are you an actor? And I was like, yeah, no, I'm trying to be. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And uh, he was like, well, my name's Jimmy. My friend here is a manager and he thinks you have a good look. And through that manager, I ended up getting my first agent. And that is how my career was born so you were discovered you were discovered in mel's diner is that is that the true diner yeah like it was 1949 like i was yeah yeah that's amazing that's an amazing like origin story why an ultimate scumbag (laughs) but hey welcome to hollywood listen you just gotta find ways to to just make those stories work (laughs) <laughs> you. so then all right so so now you have an agent you have a manager and then uh how did you get involved with this very big budget film uh puffy chair uh, uh this it's at least 100 million if i'm not mistaken oh yes it was i mean all the financing for that movie came from um mark's parents so, <laughs> uh what so, was the by the way what was the what was the official budget of that film because there's a lot of myth about that film do you, do you remember it's or... now we can say I think it was like twenty thousand yeah something like that right yeah that's that's what it's really like, yeah. low but it's so much more than the budget of my first film the freebie which was ten thousand so you have one up on Mark on that I do I do <laughs> um, but uh, I you know so there I spent a couple of years in L A like really uh, like putting myself out there auditioning getting some crap roles that I really wasn't great in and didn't love but i knew i loved doing it so it was at that point a, a couple years in that i was like i'm actually going to go to theater school um i had started dating mark already mark was in an indie rock band 
um, at the time. And really quickly for everyone listening, because just in case they don't know, you're married to Mark Duplass, who is the the director of Puffy Chair and many other independent films. The Duplass brothers. Yes, and half of the Duplass brothers. Uh, as well, Jay and Mark. So yeah, yeah. just so everybody knows who we're, because we just keep saying Mark, like you and I know. I think everyone knows. I think everyone, anyone who's listening to your podcast is going to like, they know. No, but just I in case. Listeners. Um, so we've been dating. He was an indie rock guy, not a filmmaker, not in movies at all. And uh, while we were dating, he, um, he did it. They did their short movie. This is John. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we and while I was in school in New York, we did the short Scrapple. Um, and that went to Sundance. Both of those went to Sundance. And so then the day after I finished my my theater school program, we went into production on the puffy chair. And and the rest, was- as they say, is history. So I have so I have to ask you, because, you know, during that time, I mean, there was obviously that film movement. That you know, which I know a lot of the filmmakers in that world don't like to use the word mumblecore, but because uh, it was coined by some some journalists. But for yeah. lack of a better term, Ew. I'm sorry, gross journalist. Is exactly so. But but during that time, there was a group of filmmakers doing this kind of style of filmmaking. Yeah. And and looking back at those kind of films, you know, when I I mean you you were I mean Puffy Chair and Mark and. Jay and 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 Lynn Shelton and all that they were just such huge inspirations for me for my first feature that I did in I don't know a few years a few years ago. Uh, but the the thing that was interesting about that that kind of that movement of filmmaking it was just very run and gun. It was shot with video cameras. I have to ask you because you'd been at, at least in productions at this point as an actress, so you're on the set of Puffy Chair. I, what do you think as an actress going, is this going to work? Like there's no lighting. It's like kind of like raw. It's like, what did you think about that? It was really interesting because, you know, in our, in the early years in our relationship, Mark would see me in LA with my friends who are all like all actors who are out of work. And he's like, I don't understand why you guys just don't grab a camera and make something. And I was like, Oh babe, that's cute. Like, that's not how it's done. Okay. Like, you need a studio, you need a trailer, you need, you know, it was like just an idea because that is what we were told was always just how it was, how it was done. And it's because it had to be that way back in the days when you were shooting film. Right. But right around this time is where everything started to change uh, with technology and things became Mm -hmm. so much more accessible and affordable. And, um, I mean, God, you look back at some of those early Mumblecore movies and they look, they're garbage. They look so, they look so bad. bad. Some of, Joe, some of Joe's, 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 Joe Swansburg stuff, I look back, I'm like, how did that get released? I know, but at the time, like no one cared because it was, you were getting cameras in the hands of young artists. And so right. it was so exciting to hear and see young voices at work. And so it was I mean, yes, there were definitely moments on Puffy Chair and Scrabble and Mrs. John where I was like, this is like never going to fly. But also there's something so incredibly freeing in like, first off, not kind of knowing the rules mm-hmm. that you don't even know you're breaking. Right. So there's that whole idea of like, know the rules before you break them or not, or just Go from the gut and make a piece of art that you're excited about with people you love. And by the way, 
for anyone looking to go do this, you absolutely should, because even if it fails and doesn't go anywhere, you learn so much. So as long as you're not, you know, bleeding money doing it, you should absolutely be getting out there with your friends, with a camera and going and making some fun stuff. And the technology today is so much more advanced than what was going on. You guys, you're shooting mini DV. I mean, I shot my first film on mini DV, DVX 100A, if you want to geek out a little bit. I think I want to say that might have been what we did puppy chair on. Yeah, it was one that was the it it was the first time you could get a film look out of a a real and that is like very loose. (laughs) But at the time, I don't look. But at the time, it was a 24p camera. It looked gorgeous for its dick because all you had is like the 30 you had video cameras comparatively so it's like it's beta canon or oh my god it looks like film so like with puppy chair no lights we had no crew we had one guy who did sound and like would occasionally hold a sheet up over like harsh light it was all we had we (laughs) you just run and gunned it so that was that was the thing because I always wanted to ask actresses and actors who were in those early movies. Like, I got, I mean, before it was a thing, and you were there at the beginning of it. You had to go like this. Am I wasting my time? It's, am I just doing this because I love Mark? Like, <laughs> and I'll also say like, but you you have those moments in there where you're like, oh, it feels really good. It's yeah. raw. It was raw. Yeah. It was. Yeah, and there were some moments in the puffy chair that I still look back on and like. You know, actors talk about like, oh, it's in the flow, but like you have those moments and you're like, that was one of the more authentic moments I've ever had as as an actor. Yeah. And and it's 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 really interesting to go back and look at those at those films because there is this kind of kinetic raw energy to them. And even though they're technically not sound at all, uh, at all, they look terrible, but their hearts are so pure. And right. And it and it completely goes through and it is pretty remarkable. And of course, you named it something so marketable like the puffy chair, uh, which <laughs> you I know, mean, when you want to know what a movie is about just by hearing the title, it's about a puffy chair. It's about <laughs> I remember during those years, I was I was hearing the rumbles of of the puffy chair and I was like, hell is the puffy chair and i'm like why is this movie you're like oh it's actually a puffy chair okay like and i remember thinking to myself before because this is it wasn't pre-internet obviously but it was internet light like the yeah yeah, early internet so it wasn't like there was a lot of information out there about the movie so i remember what like hearing about it like i don't even there was no youtube yet 2004 2005 is when youtube started so the trailer wasn't out no there wasn't i don't think we had a trailer until years later yeah, until like finally, eventually, someday it ended up on the Apple. And that so, was some very sweet person who just like cut it together for for fun. Now, why? I mean, when this film, when the movie came out, it went to Sundance and it did, were you surprised at yeah. the reaction? Like, I mean, I mean, that's the question. It was like, did you know it was going to be a hit? I knew you didn't know, but it's so overwhelming. This, the reality. Yeah, I will say in the test screening, when we were testing, puffy chair i cried because i was like this is awful <laughs> i had also like never as an actor had never been privy to a test screening right so like when moments fall flat when things like aren't playing well and like i never should have been in that room thank god i was now that i'm making movies like i'm so happy i know what it is 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But my God, I was like, this is awful. I never should have done this. It might end our relationship. This is a real, a real stinker. Um, did you, by the way, did you have a conversation with him about this afterwards? Yeah. And he was like, babe, it's a test screening. Like every, you're asking people to critique the movie. They're like, they're, they're there to criticize and to make it Beat better. It up. So yeah. you got to tear it down to build it back up again. And it was an early, early, early test screening at Two Boots Pizza in the Lower East Side. And I can imagine, I'm, I'm assuming technically it was sound, very technically sound. Sure. That I'm sure it sounded and looked amazing. The color grading uh, alone was fantastic. But then what I will say is that experience to the next time I saw it, because then I said I would refuse to watch any more cuts of the movie until it was done. Uh, the next time I saw it was when it premiered at the library at Sundance. And it played to a full theater and... When that Death Cab for Cutie song comes on and you're com- you're, the van is pulling through the tunnel, I just like had this moment that where everything just froze. And I was like, oh, I think this might work. Like it just, you could feel the energy in the room. But the interesting thing about that screening was that I had never seen Puppy Cheer as like a funny movie because I was like, my heart into it and it was about heartache and you're watching this couple fall apart and and as at some point in the movie and I think it's in the hotel scene maybe I haven't seen this movie in a hundred years but I think it's in the in the hotel room where I'm like give me I'm having a complete emotional breakdown and I'm sobbing and I'm like give me a number I just want to know and like the whole audience laughs and I was like wait a second (laughs) I was like, oh, it is funny because there's nothing else. As an audience member, you're so uncomfortable and you can relate so much and you connect. And it was in that moment I was like, oh, I get it. And I also get what I can do. And I get like that, that particular type of humor of like really dissecting like human discomfort, like that something clicked in me. It was, it was really amazing. And then like everything changed after that. We Got, I got signed by, at the time it was William Morris mm-hmm. and like on stage at the premiere and we moved right out to Los Angeles from there and we've been here ever since Puppy Chair premiered. So then from that point on, your career kind of took off. Oh yeah, it's been, it was so easy. After <laughs> that, it was just, everything happened. Everything like, like yeah. was just, it, they just, did they, did they, when they backed As up the money... Be- in every television show and uh, in every movie, it's like hard to figure out like when to take a break because I'm just always working. So when they pulled up the money truck and they did they back up into the front yard? It's like all beep beep, dump it in. Uh, yeah, no, it's funny. It didn't work that way. It, yeah, didn't, it never does. It never it, does. Even for even even for Mark and and Jay, they had to. No. They had to hustle. You don't gotta really work at it and still bust your ass and and find who you are as an artist and right. decide what kind of artist you want to be. And then I don't know. That's like all part of it. Right. So when you made your first feature, the freebie, um, which when I when I was watching, I was like, oh, this is obviously taking a cue from Puffy Chair. Uh, arguably, much more sound technically. I have to say, uh, if, if I'm if I'm gonna 
if I'm going to call it out. Mark will be the first one to tell you that I lean into cinema a little bit more than he does. He's like, I don't give a shit. I just give me like, give me your performance. That's all I care about. I literally don't care what's in the frame. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm like, you, you, oh, I kind of wanted it to look pretty. <laughs> exactly. So when I was watching, I'm like, it definitely there's an inspiration from from that that core, the mumblecore movement, but it's definitely a little bit more cinematic, but there's still... There's, I was watching scenes. I was like, "Oh, there's no lights here. Like this is all all yeah. natural. This is yeah. all natural." It's it's, a, and then you had Dax Dax Shepard in as your co-star, who's absolutely wonderful. And and I'm, I'm I mean, he was in 2010. It was pre-parenthood. Yeah, so he was he was he wasn't Dax Shepard yet. He was he known. No, he, he was, was he was without a paddle, Dax Shepard. Oh, punked or punked and punked Dax Shepard. He was there, um, which is. Like, I really take great pride in being like this, like the first step for him into like him really showing the world who he is as an actor. And um, I truthfully, I really hope he gets back into more of that kind of acting. He's a beautiful actor. No, he is. He's a he's excellent actor. Even when in Parenthood, he was. Oh, my God. Well, that's the thing. I think and he said he took Reby in an effort to like get into natural acting. I was like his like training ground. Like he was just like he was working his stuff out on me. Which like thank God, thank God he did because he finished <laughs> he finished shooting uh he finished shooting our movie uh all of eight days that we shot that movie and went right up to uh San Francisco to go shoot Parenthood. And he's done and he's done okay since then. He's done he's done all right. He's, he's done, done all right for himself. He's done yeah. all right. He's done all right for himself. No question about it. Now, the one thing I always love asking um directors, and something that's not talked about as much as it should be, is the politics on set. That there's a lot of politics that young directors and especially female directors who have had on the show, they have a whole other set of things that they have to deal with on mm-hmm. set. Is there any advice you can give young directors, both male and female, coming up about politics on a set. And when I say politics of set, yeah, there's obviously the politics of studio executives and investors and producers. Which I'm not familiar with. I can't speak to that at all. But <laughs> but with even crew people who push back on you, don't believe in your vision or have been doing this for 30 years and they're like, who's this kid? And that how do you deal with that? And what advice do you have for kids or young excuse um, me, young young directors coming up? Yeah. I mean, please, I want the 60 year old who's making their first movie uh, <laughs> to deal with the politics of the set. Deal with the politics on set. Because the truth of the matter is, is I've had two different experiences. And look, Freebie was um, a unicorn all on its own. Like that was like felt like film camp. Like it was a very like Cassavetes esque, like just really warm environment where it was so collaborative and I don't think I will ever have anything like that again, uh, where I felt fully supported from every single person who was in my home shooting that movie. It felt like such a safe space. My second film with BlackRock, I definitely went in with um, a much heavier sense of imposter syndrome. And I think I, I wrongly so balanced that out with like a strong persona of like, no one's going to push me around. And I, I didn't treat people, I think, the way I want to treat people moving through this world. Like, I, I very much regret the way I handled situations. And I think part of it came from insecurity and part of it came from stress. And, and we were under so many, like, the physical elements of that movie were so 
hard. We were freezing cold and wet and bug bitten and, you know, over budget. And all of those things, I think, led to me not being the leader that I really wanted to be. And then with Mac and Rhea, I went into that having really spent 10 years since BlackRock sitting with that and thinking about the kind of director I want to be in the way I want to lead a set. And um, and with Mac and Rita, I led with kindness and gratitude and respect and um, and humility. And I think that there is nothing more powerful than someone saying, I don't know. Let's figure that out together. I don't know. What do you think? There is a reason why you hire the incredibly talented people around you, and that is to support you with their knowledge of their job, right? right? I don't know how to be a cinematographer. There's a reason why the camera's not in my hands because I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to hang a light. I don't know what it takes for you know everything that goes into production design. I hire people who are wonderful at their jobs. And I think the biggest job for a director is to trust in those people and to thank them for their work. And it is still a collaboration. It's still a conversation. You can absolutely weigh in on things. But I think that uh, if you can end every day with thank you so much for everything you did today, I couldn't be doing this without you. I think that would be my biggest piece of advice. You know, what's so interesting is when when I watched Black Rock and watched uh, Mac and Rita, it, it's you can you you could feel the energy difference. I mean, they're two different kinds of story, but you can just feel you know because in Black Rock you're one of the actresses. You can kind of sense that, and and I have to I have to ask when I was watching, I was like, man, this must have been a super easy set. I mean, it should have just it just flowed, everything worked nicely on Black Rock. There's no issues whatsoever. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because uh, you're running around on an island, and I'm like, oh, all oh. exteriors on the coast of Maine. I mean, it just nearest rental house is six hours away. Right. So when your water housing fails, like you're done. You're done. There, like we were supposed to have cameras in the water with us. Didn't have any. Like things like there was no shooting and jiving on that movie. Like it was all the, or oppo- the opposite of freebie. The opposite of free the complete opposite and and sitting in that headspace for two years the you know the time that it takes to make that movie right. really it did a, a number on me yeah because i mean as i mean it was it was your apocalypse now in many ways because you were stuck out on an island <laughs> exactly it's <laughs> I mean, it must have been. I was the one having 10 heart attacks. I mean, it must have been. It must have been brutal because (laughs) as I'm watching it, I'm like, this is not easy on a massive budget. I'm like, even with a hundred million dollar budget, you're still in the elements. Anytime you're shooting in the elements, even a scene or two, you shot most of that film in there and you're running around. The only interior shot of that movie is in the car in the beginning when the two girls, when Lake and Kate are in the car. Is the only time wow. that there is an interior shot. So when you were prepping that film, I have to ask you, did you did it come up? They're like, hey guys, we're gonna be shooting outside. Can we control because you're at the whim of weather and, and the yeah. sun going and in and out? Tides. And, oh, tides. This is what we never considered. Fucking tides. 
that go in and out twice day. a day. Oh God. It was uh it was so it was, so how do, came out of that where like we bit off more than we could chew with this one. And so, it was I'm still so proud of what we made ultimately, but man, it was hard. So how do you, how as a director, do you keep morale going? And by the way, you have the added bonus of being an actress in the film that you're directing in this insanity. So well, I can imagine. I think I, I misstepped is I focused the most on morale of the cast. And oh. I did not, because we were also in two separate camps. Like the crew was all held up in one house and the cast and the produced, the Adela Romanski and I, were in another house. And so I was uh, like, so above the line, below the I line. Like, I need to keep the actors happy, not realizing that the crew was like ready to mutiny, mutiny. It was, they were going to, they were going to. So that is, a, if everyone listening, if you can at all help it, definitely don't separate above the line and below the line on an, in, on an independent film. Try to bring them all together. And in my head, I was like, I, this is, it's all going to work. If we could all just get through these 23 days, like it's all going to, like, I promise you it's all going to work. But like when you're getting a hundred dollars a day and getting the shit kicked out of you and like bitten, eaten alive by bugs, like it's hard to remember that it's all, I ultimately like financially going to work, you know, it was hard. No, it was so, great lesson, and I, I hope for your listeners. Yeah, I hope so. you guys can take with you. I mean, look, I've shot out, I've shot in in, in nature, and it's uh, it sucks. It's, yeah. uh, it's like you just can't control when that sun goes behind a cloud. We got to wait, or are we going to yeah. try to light it? Are we going to because we don't have the we don't have the budget to actually set up a nice you know 10k up and turn it on and off to match it's, it's just it's just brutal. <laughs> it's so when I was watching this, I'm like, I know she didn't have the biggest budget on this. This is her second movie, and she's yeah. running around on an island. Yeah. Oh, in Maine. Who do I make it? Like, who was naked and afraid? It was naked and afraid. It was the pilot for Naked and Afraid. That's exactly yeah. every every time we hit a thing, you just can actually crank it up a notch, and that's where we were. It was wow. Like looking back on it, like glad I had that experience, but holy, holy cow! Wow. Now, you know, you've gone through a bunch of stuff in your career and you've, you know, gone through your journeys. Is there anything that you wish someone would have told you at the beginning of your career? If you can go back in time and talk to yourself and go, look, I, uh, I know you want to be a, an actress and that's all good. And we're going to do that. But keep this in mind. Um, uh, the one thing that I would say is like. And I mean, it really speaks to your podcast is like, never stop hustling. Mm -hmm. You got it. Just like, I am, I will forever be so upset at myself for the way I, I operated post puffy chair. I was like, I just had a movie that was a hit in Sundance. Like I'm fine. I let Mark and Jay go to every film festival. And I was like, I'm going to do pilot season. I missed every opportunity to meet filmmakers, to get in those conversations. Uh, and, and that was such a loss. Like I'm so bummed that, and it changed the narrative. Right. And, and the narrative became like, you know, Mark put his girlfriend in the movie and it's like, well, no, I'm actually like, I'm an actor. I've been doing this longer than he's been doing it. 
but like because I wasn't there, I wasn't a part of the narrative. You know, so someone else wrote the narrative for you. Someone else wrote the narrative. So that would be my piece of advice to my younger self is like, don't let anyone else write the narrative. Like, keep the pen in your hand at all times. Do you think and that, that doesn't was- mean to be? That doesn't mean. Sorry to interrupt you. Sure, sure, that sure. doesn't mean to be utterly obnoxious and to be that person who's constantly like trying to shove the door open. But it just means like say yes to opportunities and never think that you are at a point where you are too good to whatever that thing is. For me as an actor, it's like, I still put myself on tape for everything that I'm excited about. Like, I am not too good for that. I I don't care. I don't care. I'll do it. And for, you know, as far as like putting Mac and Rita in the world, I want to say yes to every opportunity to talk to anyone because this is my moment now. And I don't know when I'm going to get this moment again. And that's something that people people don't realize is like when you're directing, I, I take it when anytime I walk on set, I'm like, oh, I'm so happy to be here. Mm-hmm. You know, unless you're Ridley Scott and you're directing every single day of your entire life for the last 40 years. Um, generally, people don't get that opportunity. So when you get the opportunity as as artists, directors are the one artist that we rarely get to to to, to perform our art. Yeah. It's- well, I'll say that to any to any like actors feel the same way, at least a lot of times directors are creators of their own art, right? So at least then you have some <clears throat> semblance of control in your in your path. Whereas actors, so often we are left to, uh, you know, the mercy of others, like making the call, right. making a decision, like asking permission to do what we do. And mm-hmm. so, you know, look, <clears throat> I think the more we can self, generate and 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 at least just keep um our idle hands busy but even you know directors i think have a little bit of an easier time generating things for themselves but it is it's hard it's deceptive right like the job the work is it's few and far between as as you move through the world and when when you were saying that you didn't take advantage of all those conversations after puffy chair and you were just like i'm gonna go do pilot season was that ego were you just yeah. like, I've, I have arrived. I don't need to do this. 100%. It was young, stupid, eager. And not really understanding the business that well. I mean, I'm still the girl from Maine who like, I wasn't raised in this. Like I didn't, and I didn't have anyone really guiding me to tell right. me you, this is like, we were Mark and Jay and I sort of came and, you know, my previous group of friends in Los Angeles were all living very different lives and they didn't understand, they didn't understand the Sundance of it all, right? They were mm-hmm. like, that's so crazy. And in their minds, they were also like, she made it. Yeah. But like, you know, Jeremy Sisto on a TV show doesn't understand like Katie Azelton at a, in a Sundance movie, you know? It's like just two very different worlds. And so I had no one to look to, to be like, how, what do you think I should do right now? The, the, there was no podcast back then to tell you. Oh my God. <laughs> Can you, really could have could you, I would have killed for this podcast 10, yes. 15 years ago. Could you imagine having all this information, having these kind of like really candid conversations? Oh you, I mean, it would have been massive to be it's able to have just, this. It's so awesome to have something that just demystifies something that is, that we grew up like, putting on a pedestal, right? That it felt so unattainable. It felt so like, you know, we grew up looking at directors like Spielberg and just being like, how does he do it? But like, what if 
he actually told us. <laughs> I mean, and I've and had the pleasure of talking to some of the, and I've had the pleasure of talking to some of these kind of gods, these like filmmaking gods. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I'm trying to get Steve on the show. Um, I, 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 call, I call him Steve because, you know. Oh, but <laughs> I saw him one time. I had a meeting at DreamWorks uh-huh. and he just walked in the door. And I was like, yeah. the only thing I could say is he looks exactly like Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and I know that's so weird, but like he like he looks like he like had the best. He had like it's, it's, yeah. he just I was like, well, no, you are absolutely Steven Spielberg. It's a uniform. It's a Steven Spielberg uniform. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Can you imagine? And I've talked to so many people who've worked with Steven and bit and, and had businesses with him and stuff. How, what's it like being someone like that, that in, in certain circles, I mean, he could walk around, he could probably, he's so famous and he's such a, he's such a known person around the world, but he's not Brad Pitt. Like he, he can go off. Just like he looks just like Steven Spielberg. Right. So the point is like, every time he walks into a room and there's a filmmaker in there, they all had the same reaction you did. Like, how do you, and I've talked to people, like, how does he deal with it? He's like, he's just really nice, man. Yeah. He's just really I think nice he's and a pleasant. Kind human. I think there are people yes. who are not quite so kind, but I think and he is. no, in this business, stop no, it. I know it's shocking. Stop it. I know. Next, you're going to say there's egos in Hollywood. I know. I'm not the only one, it turns out, who has an ego. <laughs> so I, I had the pleasure this morning to watch your new film, Mac and Rita, and I absolutely adored it. It's so much fun. And I'm, you know, in the beginning of the movie, you guys shot in Palm Springs and I, uh, I just left LA. I moved to Austin about a year ago. And uh, right before I left, I went to Palm Springs for the first time. And uh, that's where the devil lives. I don't know if you know that the devil actually has a home in Palm Springs. It was 119 when I went, I've never been in 119. You're not meant to go in the months. I don't quite know what you were thinking. I went to Joshua Tree and then we're like, hey, we're close to Palm Springs. Let's just go check it out. And but there's human beings walking the streets and yeah. not bursting into flames. So I felt like just yelling at them, like, what's wrong with you people? Like, don't you understand? Don't you understand they what's happening? They, go, they love themselves. Oh my, so as I, so as I was watching those scenes that you shot, I was just like, when did they shoot this? Because it had to be. <laughs> it, was, it was March. Uh, it was hot, but not as hot as it could have been. So we're, we we were in the nineties hundreds. Yeah, it was probably okay. it was probably like ninety. And honestly, like it was fine. We were okay. Okay, yeah, because I was like, poor Diane No one died. <laughs> All right, so tell me about the movie. Tell me what the movie's about. Uh, the movie is is really ultimately about um, being your truest form of yourself yeah. at any age, right? This is a really hard movie to give like a one-line synopsis to. So that's my one-liner, right? That's your pitch? That's your pitch? That's your that's elevator pitch? pitch? It's like, be your, it is. your true self at any age. And the, the thing longer is... longer pitch... Okay, please tell us the longer pitch. The longer pitch is, it is a story about a 30-year-old woman named Mac who finds herself living a very inauthentic life. She has friends who are all very hip, trendy, and with it. Yet she connects more to the older women in her life. She was raised by her grandmother and she really feels like she is a 70-year-old woman trapped in the body of a 30-year-old. So while on this wild bachelorette weekend in Palm Springs with her girlfriends, she 
is just dying to lay down and get away from it all. So she tucks herself into a side tent that has a regression pod in it. And she doesn't care that's a regression pod. She's going to lay down. And in that pod has a bit of a mental breakdown and really uh, screams that she is a 70-year-old trapped in a 30-year-old's body. And sure enough, she comes out, Diane Keaton. And which, which, is very big, which, which is very big, very big style. Like yeah, Tom Hanks, big, totally. beautiful. <laughs> but it was so fun to like then watch this character have a 70-year-old woman have to live the life of a 30-year-old with the obligations of the 30-year-old. She's an influencer. She's a writer. Like, she just still has to live that life. And it turns out, you know, our girl Mac really confused age with wisdom. And the truth is she didn't want to be old. She just wanted to be her. And how do we get back to ourselves? A much better pitch than the first one, I have to say. All right. It's so it's a, it, it is no, but that it takes a minute to to bring it out because and you know just that Pilates scenes alone was brilliant. Oh, man. I mean Can that must have been uh, so so you so you're working with uh, this young upstart uh, Diane Keaton. Uh, yeah. What is it like um, introducing? What's it like introducing Diane Keaton to the world? Oh my god, I'm going to be so excited for people to see what she can do. <laughs> What's it like working with a living legend? I got it. Like as a director, how do you approach? giving her notes and directing a scene. How is How did you work with her? I have to say, like, it truly, someone at some point was like, oh, you're directing Diane, like, dream come true. And I was like, no, no I didn't dare to dream that big. Like, look at what I'm doing. This is insane. Who dares to dream? Like, I'm from a town of 300 people, from a school that didn't have a drama program. <laughs> For four years. For four years, I was in a drama club with no production. Uh, so it is like, it is a real, like, even like on the eve of like putting this movie out into the world, I am still pinching myself that that is my reality, that I get to work every day with her. And the truth of the matter is, is that it, she is just an absolute fucking delight. Like she is, she is, one of the reasons why she's so great in this movie is because she is hands down like the most authentic person you could ever possibly want to meet. The Diane that we have known and fallen in love with as audience members like for decades is exactly who she is. That is Diane. Those quirks, the idiosyncratic like wild wackiness, the in the insecurities the the heart like the humor all of that is wrapped up in in diane and it's all right there she is like vulnerable and real and fun and and self-effacing and it's just like she is a true delight and working with her was i was really expecting or prepared anyways uh i think a lot of actors, never mind actors who are in their 70s and have been doing this for 40 years, 30, 50 years, uh, I you expect them to be very set in their ways, that they're going to come in, they're going to give the performance they're going to give, and no one's going to tell them any different, right? Uh, and Diane was not that at all. She was so open and like game and ready to play and always wanted to do more physical comedy. And yeah. it was just... I am so grateful for what she brought every day. And I mean, just again, I'll go back to the Pilates scenes. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant what she did in that. That you could just see the 
the mastery of timing and and comedy and how she's yeah. able to like, she's a she's a master of physical comedy she really is um, i know and she doesn't get to do it which is like crazy to me i feel like i feel like i haven't seen her do like be this physical in a movie since like wow. baby Yo, God, geez, baby. Boom. And I use baby boom as like a reference throughout this movie because I think it is a very underappreciated movie. It mm-hmm. still 100% holds up. Mm-hmm. The story of baby boom is like, the most, yeah. it's almost more relevant now than it was then post pandemic. And are we going to work from home? And like, do we work to live or live to work? And like, who was the, the, who was the director of that? again? Charles Shire. Oh, who is it? I think it's Charles Shire, wasn't it? It was, yes, I think, yeah, because I had, I think I had him on the show. No, I didn't think I had him on the show. And I was asking him about this. Like, is, it, is it Charles? I think it was. Yes, yes, yeah. He's, yeah, and he's a master. He was a yeah. absolute, oh. What she does physically in that movie, like the, her like freak out breakdown at the well, when the well runs dry, um, the way she kisses Sam Shepard, like all of those were touch points for me in making this movie and and we talked a lot about it and and i just loved it i love i mean i love all of diane's stuff but i think what she did physically in baby boom was really like where we were looking to sort of land with mac and rita and um what was it you know as a director we always come up with that day that uh, the whole world's coming down crashing around us and i know that you could argue that every day is that uh <laughs> But there's always that one day that has called 2022. Exactly. Exactly. Was there a day that sticks out in your mind that the whole world was coming crashing down around you and you felt like, oh my God, how am I going to get through this? What was that and how did you overcome it? Uh the day that we were shooting out at the beach, the mm-hmm. big fire stuff. Yeah. Declare power summit. <laughs> uh shooting. And all of a sudden, I'm so sorry. I think. Like the army is landing nearby. It's fine. It's, it's all good. Um, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. We were shooting at the beach. We had this big, big fire stunt and we're getting going and it's a gorgeous day. I'm like so psyched. The weather's great. And all of a sudden, like as we're like gearing up for the fire stuff, like the wind starts to pick up. And L.A. ended up having, like, gale force winds that day. Oh, and you'll see, you'll watch, like, there's hair blowing everywhere. We ended up having to CGI, like, most of the fire. We could not get anything to frigging light. It was the most infuriating. Finally, Diane was just like, the second there's fire, I'm getting on stage. I was like, yes, yeah, you're going to just go, and we're going to do it, and we're going to. And thankfully I had Nicole Byer there who is like just a comedic genius. And I could just rely on her to like be clutch. Like you just need in moments like that, you need people to deliver. And so we end up like barely pulling out that fire thing. We go to turn the cameras around so we can get her walking through the event and the wind, I want to say it was like 40 miles an hour. Gale first wind picks up all of the tents and get lifted like a wizard of oz and get fucking malibu like they went so far 
And we were just like, we got to call it. Like, obviously, we uh, we cannot shoot. We don't have a set anymore. God doesn't want you to shoot. It's basically. God not want us to finish this day. So <laughs> we like go home and we're like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So we're looking at the schedule, working out with the AD. And the only day that we can like fit in a half day reshoot is the day that we are shooting Diane coming out of uh, the pod. Mm-hmm. The first time? Yeah, the first time. First time. Um, Diane's work hours are, are 12 hours portal to portal. Hair and makeup, all of that requires some time. Two locations, Santa Monica to downtown. Oh. And a massive, massive wardrobe change in between and a hair change because she has the longer hair there meant that I had 20 minutes to shoot Diane coming out of the pod. Wow. It was like only the most important. Basically the most important shot. (laughs) But then also the Marie Claire thing is important because then that's like production value, right? Like we need the feel of this big, huge event. We need Diane like working the vendors We're you know, we're shooting her coming through and doing the whole thing. There was no compromise. You just had to do it. It was one of those things where I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And you know what? And I love these kinds of stories. That's why I always ask that question because I love to demystify for young filmmakers coming up that they're like, oh, you've got Diane Keaton. This is a big budget. This is this and that. Everything runs smoothly. Yeah. No. No. Shit goes wrong at every level. Like, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care what studio is making your movie. I don't care if you're just making it with friends. Every something is going to always go wrong and you just have to be ready for it. Now, when's when is this film available? Uh, August 12th in theaters. Yes, August 12th. That's Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, August 12th in theaters and then we'll be P- PVOD in September and then on Hulu in December. That's so awesome. I can't wait for the world to see this film. Uh, now I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my guests. What advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? Hmm. Make stuff with your friends. Get good. Work and just hustle. Work, work, (laughs) hustle. Make it. What is the lesson lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? Uh, I think it is. uh, You got to put that ego on the shelf and do the work. (laughs) It, it is something that they don't talk and it's about. A daily day. Like you gotta, that is, I think, you know, listen, I listen to Oprah and Deepak and ego is, is a daily struggle for everyone, but it, it is, is also like first enemy. Like it, your ego does, you no favors, but you know what? The funny thing is that in our business, it's even more prevalent because not everybody has a group of people or an entire industry telling you you're the best. Yeah. You're awesome. It's difficult to handle that at any level. Well, and I think that it gets confused. Ego gets confused with confidence, right? Like you can have confidence in your skills and your abilities, but not be led by your ego. Right. Exactly. Like I'm too good for that. I remember when I first started directing, I went out as a commercial director and I'd been editing. I was a top editor in in South Florida. I was making tons of cash. And then as soon as I made my demo reel, I just said, I'm no longer an editor. I'm just going to send my, and then I get calls. Hey, can you work? No, I, I don't edit anymore. I am now a director. Mind you, 
wasn't directing. <laughs> Hard to call yourself a director when you're not actually doing it. Exactly. So it was just very, and oh, don't worry. I always tell people, don't worry. The universe has a way of just slapping. Yep. Just a little nudge here and there. Knocking, knocking your head just a little bit. And last question, three of your favorite films of all time. Mm. Tootsie. That's so brilliant. Oh. Uh, Big Lebowski. Another brilliant one. And I will say Baby Boom. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Oh, I had one other question I forgot to ask you. What did you learn from your biggest failure? Mm-hmm. That, that there's always another. There's going to be a tomorrow. You know, the world doesn't stop making movies. The world doesn't stop making TV shows. Um, it doesn't end on on the last project. It it's gonna the the business keeps going, and no one gives as much shit about you as you do. <laughs> like no one. Cares. You always you spend how many how many hours of your life was wasted thinking about what other people thought of you, and you could and as as you've gotten older, you go like they didn't think a bit they about were, me. They have their own no, crap. No. Oh crap! They're dealing with. Yes. How egocentric yes. are we to think like when we walk in a room? What are they thinking? I'm how I look. Oh, no, they're, they're just thinking. Everyone, about- everyone cares. No one get. No one cares. <laughs> they're all worried about themselves. Right, and, and they're all crap. It's like cut everyone else some grace. Everyone's doing their best. Yeah, exactly. There's no quite. We're all doing our best, and we're all just trying to make it through this this life's journey and in this business is. Oosh, it's brutal. Cut yourself we, some grace. Cut everyone else some grace, and uh, try and, and enjoy it as much as you can. Katie, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor talking to you. So much fun. Thank you so much for dropping your knowledge bombs on the tribe. I appreciate you very, very much. And best of luck. I can't wait to see your next project. So thank you again. Me too. All right, I'll talk to you soon. I want to thank Katie so much for coming on the show and dropping her knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Thank you so much, Katie. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 280. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 